Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I have a fun show for you this week. I guess you could say this episode is a, a little more personal than usual. This week, I'm talking about the Old Gallows at Tyburn, which was a major site of execution in London for many years. And then I'm going to tell you all about heartthrob highwayman Claude Duval. Now, if you've read my books, you might remember these subjects from my first book, Tyburn, which begins on the day of Claude's execution on January 21st of 1670. I'm not usually one to commemorate the anniversary of somebody's death, but with Claude, we don't actually know his birthday, and we do want to remember him. Of course, all these years later, everyone still does. In life, he was almost the prototype for the dashing gentleman highwayman, and he continues to inspire fiction and even ghost stories to this day. Which brings me to part three of this episode. After we talk about the history of Tyburn and Claude Duval, I have a special guest on the show to look at the subject from another angle. Matt Robinson is the host of the brand new podcast, Ghoul Britannia, investigating famous ghosts and even cryptids around Britain, as well as the history behind them. He is also, coincidentally, one of my very best friends in the entire world. We actually met in an ancient history class in university many years ago when he complimented my Black Plague t-shirt. Yes, that's a thing. History nerds got a history nerd. And the rest is, well, I suppose it's ancient history. <laughs> I'm uh, very excited to introduce him to you today. But first, for some context, let's talk about Tyburn. Once enough to send a shiver down the spine of anyone in London or Greater Middlesex, the infamous Tyburn Gallows have at last begun to fade from collective memory. Between 1196 and 1783, an estimated 60,000 people were executed at Tyburn. Murderers sometimes, and highwaymen certainly, but for every major criminal executed there, there were four more condemned for petty theft. Most of the people hanged at Tyburn were under 21, and many of them, if you can believe it, were still just kids. As Brooke and Brandon write in Tyburn, London's Fatal Tree, by the 18th century, Tyburn had become associated with mockery, irreverence, and the defiance of authority. The activities there encapsulated rough-and-ready humor, elements of carnival, and, on occasion, very public displays of approval or sympathy for the condemned miscreants. For their part, the latter sometimes seemed to have relished their brief moment of glory and to have drawn succor from it. The public executions at Tyburn were intended to demonstrate the omnipotence of the law and serve as a deterrent to further crime. Hangings took place eight times a year in highly ritualized events that were intended to put the fear of God into the condemned and the spectators alike. The ritual started the evening before the execution, 
when the condemned would be offered the final sacrament by the prison chaplain before the bell tolled in the tower of St. Sepulchre's Church. In 1604, Robert Dow left the church 50 pounds annually to toll the bells for the condemned both the evening before and the day of the execution. The handbell was also rung within the prison to accompany the following cry. All you that in the condemned hole do lie, prepare you, for tomorrow you shall die. Watch all and pray, the hour is drawing near, that you before the Almighty must appear. Examine well yourselves, in time repent, that you may not the eternal flames be sent. And when St. Sepulchre's bell in the morning tolls, the Lord above have mercy on your souls. Surely being executed was cruel enough without being subjected to terrible poetry. But anyway, at dawn on the day of the execution, the prisoner would have his iron struck off and replaced with a cord or handcuffs. A halter was put around his neck by the knight of the halter, not just a clever name, and he was loaded into the cart with the ordinary and the coffin he was about to be buried in. Can you imagine traveling beside your own coffin? It must have felt a bit like digging your own grave. Absolutely devastating. While the cart stopped in front of St. Sepulchre's Church, where the bell was rung again, and the bellman would then ask the crowd to pray for the soul of the condemned. It was all a bit over the top. While the authorities effectively stage-managed the executions to discourage the public from criminal acts, there's no evidence that this was any real deterrent, as many attendees would later go on to commit similar crimes themselves. But the public had hanging day rituals of their own. Execution days were terrific for businesses of all kinds. The pubs stationed along the three-hour journey from Newgate to Tyburn were packed, and the hanging fair itself had plenty of opportunity for profit. Young pickpockets were known as Tyburn Blossoms, a cute name with a grim association, as the gallows themselves were called the Tyburn Tree or the Hanging Tree. Not deterred in the slightest, pickpockets did well in the tightly packed and distracted crowds, the execution more of an opportunity than anything else. Sex workers could count on being busy in the carnival atmosphere. As always, the proximity to death made people want to feel alive. Cakes, pies, and baked potatoes were sold by street vendors, and salacious copies of the apparent last dying confessions of the condemned were circulated like programs at a play. Though most of the crowd stood, seats could be bought, and the grandstand known as Mother Proctor's Pew made 5,000 pounds from the execution of Earl Ferrers alone. For reference, 5,000 pounds at that time would be about half a million pounds in today's money. Clearly, there was money to be made on hanging days. Meeting a good end was crucial. While most would have been insensible with fear, the crowd loved those who showed a brave face. Some of the condemned gave daring or subversive speeches, joked with the crowd, or confessed at length, embellishing their crimes with lurid details. The best executions had ballads written about them and were retold in newspapers and pamphlets. For so many who had lived lives of desperation and neglect, the idea of a little post-mortem glory must have had its appeal. The crowd loved a good show, and some of the condemned took the execution as a last opportunity to rebel. One way they did this was through their clothing. On the morning of the execution, the prisoners were allowed to choose their clothes for the day. 
As the executioners could turn a profit by selling the clothes of the dead following the hanging, some chose to wear as little as possible to prevent them from doing it. A young Irish woman named Hannah Dago took this to the extreme. To keep the hangman from making money off of her clothes, she spent the three-mile journey stripping them off and throwing them into the crowd. When they reached the gallows, she wore almost nothing at all. To add insult to injury, she kneed the hangman in the balls and leapt out of the cart herself, breaking her own neck. Absolute legend. What had been intended as a public display of punishment to encourage law and order evolved over time into these acts of quiet rebellion. Displays of contrition and the warnings of the condemned were replaced with lurid confessions and triumphant farewells. While the law exercised power by executing people for relatively minor crimes, the people showed resistance by celebrating the condemned as heroes. Evidence of the disregard the public had for the executions can be found in the tongue-in-cheek terms they developed for them. Tyburn became the three-legged mare or the deadly nevergreen. Going west became a euphemism for execution, and being hanged was to dance the Paddington Frisk. The last hanging at Tyburn took place in 1783. After this, hangings were moved closer to Newgate to a site where crowds would be easier to control. They remained there until the end of public execution in Britain in 1868. Now, I lived in the UK for the better part of a decade, and oddly enough, the site of the Tyburn Gallows was actually the first thing I saw in London, outside of the airport and the train station, of course. My first weekend in London, I got off the train at Paddington and started walking. I don't even remember how I got there, but before I knew it, I was near Hyde Park, and under my feet was the plaque that commemorates the site of the old gallows today. Now, this must have stuck in my mind, because a few years later, when I was doing my creative writing MFA, I decided to start my first book there as well, appropriately called Tyburn. It starts one snowy morning at the execution of Claude Duval. So let's talk about Claude. Claude Duval was executed at Tyburn on January 21st, 1670. Most of the details of his appearance in my book are fictional, with little bits of truth slipped in, but the fact is, what we know about the historical Claude Duval is mostly limited to stories told after his death. Because so little is known for certain, we have to piece together stories to try to get a picture of the man behind the legend. So where do we start? Well, Claude Duval was born in Domfront, Normandy, in 1643 to a miller and the daughter of a tailor. In his Lives of the Highwaymen, published in 1734, Captain C. Johnson writes that Domfront was a place by no means unlikely to have produced our adventurer. Indeed, it appears that common honesty was a most uncommon ingredient among the moral economy of the place. Claude began working as a stable boy in Rouen at the age of 13, and he is believed to have become a footman in the court of Charles II in exile. Johnson writes, He continued in this humble station until the restoration of Charles II, when multitudes from the continent returned to England. In the character of a footman to a person of quality, Duval also repaired to this country. The universal joy which seized the nation upon that happy event contaminated the morals of all. Riot, dissipation, and every species of profligacy abounded. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Claude came to England with them in 1660, where he experienced the entertainments of the Restoration in full force. 
according to the Newgate calendar, the universal joy upon the return of the royal family made the whole nation almost mad. Everyone ran into extravagances, and Duval, whose inclinations were as vicious as any man's, soon became an extraordinary proficient in gaming, whoring, drunkenness, and all manner of debauchery. So far, so sensible, but Duval turned to highway robbery at some point during the 1660s. The Newgate calendar suggests he chose this profession to support his appetite for debauchery, but as this was written after the fact with a very biased point of view, we have to take this with a pretty serious pinch of salt. Whatever it was that made him begin robbing coaches, before long, Duval found himself a wanted man in more ways than one. He distinguished himself not only through skill as a highwayman, but also with his considerable charm and courtly manners. One of the most famous stories of his exploits involves his apprehension of a coach containing a knight and a lady. As the story goes, once the knight and lady realized they were about to be robbed, the lady, a young, sprightly creature, pulled out a flageolet, which is a kind of a flute that's also a bit like a recorder that you probably had to play in grade school, and she began to play it. As you do, it's a totally normal response. But then Duval pulled out a flageolet of his own from some fucking where, because you never know when you're going to need to rock out, I guess. And they played together. He then asked the knight for permission to dance with the lady, which the knight graciously granted. Johnson writes, It was surprising to see how gracefully he moved upon the grass. Scarce a dancing master in London, but would have been proud to have shown such agility in a pair of pumps as Duval showed in a great pair of French riding boots. As soon as the dance was over, he waits on the lady back to the coach without offering her the least affront. That's right. Male dancing masters at the time wore pumps. As in, fuck me pumps. As in, high heels. Yes. Also, makeup, lace, pastels, and long, luxurious wigs. All the most stylish men did. The next time you hear someone crying out for traditional masculinity, I want you to take a moment and remember that image. Got it? Good. Anyway, the knight then gave Duval the exorbitant sum of 100 pounds. Duval received it with very good grace and courteously answered, "'Sir, you are a liberal, and shall have no cause to repent your being so. "'This hundred given so generously is better than ten times the sum taken by force. "'Your noble behavior has excused you from the other three hundred which you have in the coach with you.' "'After this he gave him his word that he might pass undisturbed if he met any more of their crew, "'and very civilly wished them a good journey.' Now, Claude's behavior might not have always been what we would consider polite, especially given that he was still robbing people, but by and large, he seems like a pretty good guy. Sure, he held people up, but he wasn't a total monster. Johnson continues, Duval and some of his associates met a coach upon Blackheath full of ladies, and a child with them. One of the gang rode up to the coach, and in a rude manner robbed the ladies of their watches and rings, and even seized a silver sucking bottle of the child's. The infant cried bitterly for its bottle, and the ladies earnestly entreated he would only return that article to the child, which he barbarously refused. 
Duval went forward to discover what detained his accomplice, and, the ladies renewing their entreaties to him, he instantly threatened to shoot his companion unless he returned the article, saying, "'Sir, can't you behave like a gentleman and raise contribution without stripping people? But perhaps you had occasion for the sucking bottle yourself, for, by your actions, one would imagine you were hardly weaned.' This smart reproof had the desired effect, and Duval, in a courteous manner, took his leave of the ladies." Once the reward on his head became too much of a temptation, he returned to France for some time and is believed to have resided primarily in Paris, where he lived in style until his money ran out. He eventually returned to England, where he took up his old profession once again. But robbery was not the only way Duval was able to earn money. He was a legendary gambler who owed his success to knowing how to take advantage of his adversaries, sometimes winning as much as a hundred pounds in a single sitting. He also had a talent for betting, Johnson explains. He made it a great part of his study to learn all the intricate questions, deceitful propositions, and paradoxical assertions that are made use of in conversation. Add to this the smattering he had attained in all the sciences, particularly the mathematics, by means of which he frequently won considerable sums on the situation of a place, the length of a stick, and a hundred such other little things with which a man may practice without being liable to any suspicion or casting any blemish upon his character as an honest man or even a gentleman, which Duval affected to appear. Regardless of whether these stories were true, we know one thing for sure. Duval was irresistible to women. He was handsome, charming, and as historian Lucy Moore explains in her terrific book, The Thieves' Opera, Duval was a royalist who had served Charles II. His dashing style was intimately bound up with his links to the glamorous court in exile. But it wasn't just popularity by association. Johnson continues, He was a handsome man and had an abundance of that sort of wit which is most apt to take with the fair sex. Every agreeable woman he saw, he certainly died for, so that he was ten thousand times a martyr to love. Those eyes of yours, madam, have undone me. I am captivated with that pretty, good-natured smile. Oh, that I could by any means in the world recommend myself to your ladyship's notice. What a poor, silly, loving fool am I! These and a million such expressions, full of flames, darts, racks, tortures, death, eyes, bubbies, waist, cheeks, etc., were much more familiar to him than his prayers, and he had the same fortune in the field of love as Marlborough had in that of war. Never to lay siege, but he took the place. Ding dong. Unfortunately for Claude and the women of Britain, he was eventually caught at the Hole in the Wall Tavern on Chando Street in Covent Garden. On January 17, 1670, Sir William Morton found him guilty of six robberies and sentenced him to death at the age of only 27. He was visited in prison by numerous noblewomen in disguise, many of whom had privately begged for mercy on his behalf. They turned out in droves for his execution and the subsequent display of his body at the Tangier Tavern in Covent Garden. Convict or not, he had died a hero. Johnson writes, so much had his gallantries and handsome figure rendered him the favorite of the fair sex, then many a bright eye was dimmed at his funeral. His corpse was bedewed with the tears of beauty. When his friends prepared his body for burial, 
they supposedly found the following letter in his pocket, a farewell to the ladies who loved him. Honestly, I don't know how likely this is, but this is what it said. I should be very ungrateful to you, fair English ladies, should I not acknowledge the obligations you have laid me under. I could not have hoped that a person of my birth, nation, education, and condition could have had charms enough to captivate you all, though the contrary has appeared, by your firm attachment to my interest, which you have not abandoned even in my last distress. You have visited me in prison, and even accompanied me to an ignominious death. From the experience of your former loves, I am confident that many among you would be glad to receive me to your arms, even from the gallows. How mightily and how generously have you rewarded my former services! Shall I ever forget the universal consternation that appeared upon your faces when I was taken, your chargeable visits to me in Newgate, your shrieks and swoonings when I was condemned, and your zealous intercession and importunity for my pardon? You could not have erected fairer pillars of honor and respect to me had I been a Hercules, able to get fifty of you with child in one night. Do you really think he wrote that? I don't think so. Anyway, it continues. It has been the misfortune of several English gentlemen to die at this place. It does not, however, grieve me that your intercession for me has proved ineffectual, for now I shall die with a healthful body and, I hope, a prepared mind. My confessor has shown me the evil of my ways and wrought in me a true repentance. Whereas, had you prevailed for my life, I must in gratitude have devoted it to your service, which would certainly have made it very short. For had you been sound, I should have died of a consumption, if otherwise, of a pox. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know, of course, that in this case, uh, the pox refers to syphilis. Classy, right until the end. Anyway, Duval was buried under the center aisle of the Church of St. Paul's in Covent Garden under the following plaque. Here lies Duval. Reader, if male thou art, look to thy purse, if female, to thy heart. Much havoc hath he made of both, for all men he made stand and all women he made fall, the second conqueror of the Norman race. Knights to his arms did yield and ladies to his face. Old Tyburn's glory, England's bravest thief, Duval the lady's joy, Duval the lady's grief. Poor guy. As famous as Duval was in life, his ghost may be even more famous in death. There are several places in Britain that claim to be haunted by the ghost of Claude Duval, and that's what I'm talking to Matt about today. So here is my interview with Matt Robinson of the new podcast, Ghoul Britannia. All right, guys, I am here with none other than Matt Robinson, who is one of my oldest, dearest friends from university. And uh, he is also the host of this new podcast called Ghoul Britannia. How's that for a good title? Well, Ghoul Britannia is about to start tomorrow, which is Thursday, the 20th. And it's going to be on Anchor and Spotify and all of the platforms that we are on as well. So I am so excited to have Matt here today, uh, not only because I know that he's a, a great conversationalist, but because it's been a long time since we've been able to talk. So welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> and we are so glad that you are here. This is awesome. I really wanted to talk to you today about Claude Duval. 
So uh, as I understand it, you've been doing a little bit of investigation into these kind of alleged Claude Duval hauntings around the country. So what can you tell me about that? So he's reasonably well-traveled. Um, Claude is believed to appear in two different places. Probably the most prominent one is the Holt Hotel, which is in Steeplaston in Oxfordshire. Uh, it's a very, very nice, very upmarket hotel um, in a nice little village. It's the sort of place you might find on a postcard. Or <laughs> if you were coming over as a tourist, you might want to have a wander through and just soak up some of the British atmosphere. So Claude Duval is believed to haunt the well, most notably room three. As people listening to the podcast will probably already know, he was a little bit of a ladies' man, to say the least. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's said that women in particular do pick up on presence, so often it's just a vague feeling of being watched. Sometimes he is actually sighted. He'll either be sighted in the room itself or walking amongst the corridors. The landlord and the landlady have also reported whispering and just disembodied voices coming from the attic. Now, from, from the historical side of it, Claude Duval is known to have travelled quite a lot around the area. Um, Steve Laston is on the way from Oxfordshire through to London, so he would have probably been very active around there. Um, and they do like to, to tell people that he did come and stay at the Holt back when it was in the form it was when he was alive. There is also... Another haunting which has been sometimes put down to Claude Duval. This is believed to have caused things like beds to vibrate. Um, and again, lots of disembodied voices, lots of very uncomfortable prickling feelings of being watched. In 1754, the landlord and the landlady of the Holt were murdered. And we know that it happened. There's no folktale element when it comes to that. It was recorded in the local news and there was even a reward offered in a local publication um, for the killer to be um, captured or at least to be named. Um, the killer never was named but in recent years there are some sources that have gotten themselves mixed up and have said that it must have been Claude Duval himself uh, but it was nearly a century after he was hanged so it's unlikely <laughs> that he would have dragged himself from his grave to go and do that. In Claude Duval's case his execution was obviously nowhere near um, Oxfordshire and it was a long time before the this poor unfortunate couple were were murdered so yeah it seems unlikely it, it, maybe he's come back to haunt it maybe he just had such a nice time staying there that he decided it would be a good place to hang out after death <laughs> and if there is one person that is going to come back after their death to spy on young ladies when they're getting dressed Claude Duval's probably probably that man. He might be on that list. <laughs> yeah. So um, in terms of this uh, this more kind of amorous ghost that they say haunts room three, do you think it's possible that that could be Claude? Is is this building old enough? It's certainly old enough. Um, there's a very good chance that he did frequent it when he was alive. Um, like I said, the, the current landlord does like to tell everyone that he did stay there. It was a major route through from London to Oxfordshire. Um, Berkshire's not very far away as well and he he's believed to have had a house in Wokingham that he lived in which is in Berkshire um so yeah it's very very possible that he may have stayed overnight here and even if he didn't he may have popped in for a drink and a meal every so often depending on what you believe in hauntings is there enough really to tie his ghost to that that place after he died I don't know 
but it's possible. It certainly seemed likely that he would have popped in there from time to time during his lifetime. Tyburn itself has an awful lot of haunting activity that's reported there. And while Claude Duval isn't name dropped very much as a potential ghost, people often like to tell the story of how the people that were hanged at Tyburn have stuck around. So you're going to be talking about this on Ghoul Britannia, as well as uh, quite a few other ghost stories. Now, uh, Britain has no shortage of ghost stories, so it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. We are very lucky. We do have a lot of them. <laughs> um, so we we are going to be looking at ghost stories. We will also look at other things. So we'll look at cryptids, we'll look at curses, we'll look at, at black magic, where it comes up. Um most of the stories are going to feature ghosts because most local legends, when they, when you talk about supernatural, they are mostly ghost related. Um, but yes, we, we've got some great ones coming up. So episode one is Francis Lovell. Episode two, we'll be looking at the man monkey of Shropshire Union Canal. The man monkey um, of Shropshire Union Canal. Yes, <laughs> the man monkey... <laughs> The, the name is great. I, I had to re-record it a few times when I when I recorded the story because I was struggling to keep a straight face. Um, but <laughs> the, the actual story is quite quite chilling, but the name of him does just crack you up straight away. Um, and that's either a cryptid or it's a ghost. I, I won't say any more, but yeah. Sure. Um, we've got upcoming stories about curses. There's a Screaming Skull episode, which is not long into the podcast. Um, we even have a zombie one that comes up. Um, so our local legends are diverse enough that yes, we do actually have a zombie one um, from, I believe, the late nineteenth century. Again, oh my goodness, are there a lot of zombies in Oxford? <laughs> so that one was in Liverpool. That's in um, Liverpool. So okay, that's one in Liverpool. So it's the the walking corpse of Toxteth Cemetery. Um, but yeah, one of the things that I've tried to do with Gorbatania, rather than just focus on the same ghost stories that you hear all the time, is I've tried to find ones that have something unique or different about them. There, there's so much here. Um, we have a, obviously a very long history, but you find that the longer that history goes back, the more weird stories you're going to find. And some of them start off a long time back, but then they end up being fairly recent. A lot of, a lot of them are older. Uh, but we're just really lucky in that there are an awful lot of places nearby. And to be honest, anywhere where you live, I think if you really go looking for them, you will find a lot of strange, unexplained stories. Yeah, and that is certainly the case of pretty much everywhere I've ever lived. My goodness. Um, okay. So you're going to be talking about these. And uh, you said that the first two episodes are going to come out at the same time. Is that right? They are, yes. Um, so we thought because it's our, our dark debut that we do a twofer and give people a little bit more to sink their teeth into. So we're of that generation where you're used to being able to just binge watch and binge listen to things. So I, I get really annoyed if I can't. So I thought, well, we'll give two episodes at once. And then if people enjoy episode one, episode two is right there and they can dive right in. Right. Oh, that's awesome. So you're going to be looking at uh, the hauntings and then also it sounds like the history of the places that you're going. Um, does it help to have a background in history to be able to research this stuff? It does. I mean, most of my background in history is ancient history, so it doesn't always sync up, but the skills are the same. A lot of history, and again, something that you will know from experience, a lot of it is being patient enough to read through loads and loads of different sources, try and filter out what what's likely and what's not and, and what matches and what doesn't luckily I really love doing that kind of work 
so it definitely helps it certainly helps to visit these places where possible as well because you do get a real feel for them one of the things i've tried to look into as well is when i choose stories i try to choose ones that are somehow linked to the local community so they are very much local legends it's not just a ghost story that exists in a dozen different places and has been kind of tacked on to different areas they're unique to the local history of the place we go to and I think Francis Lovell definitely gets that I think Claude Duval when we eventually discuss him will have that I think we've done a reasonably good job of making sure that they are all unique local stories that wouldn't exist elsewhere yeah well it, it sounds absolutely incredible so I've, I've often wondered about this because you know i'm very interested in ghost stories and of course i'm really interested in about in the history and everything as well so when you are researching the history behind a ghost story how do you go about that where would you start um so the first thing i do i always start with a google search now not everything i find via a google search is reliable but it's very good for getting a broad idea um and then what i'll do is i'll look at local books Often I'll try and contact local history societies um, or, or if it's a pub or a, some kind of business, I'll try and contact that business itself and speak with somebody there. Probably the toughest part is when I end up having to delve into the local archives. So the National Archives even. I don't know if you've ever had to use the National Archives, but they're a pig to search through. They, they are a pain. There's so much there. Yeah. <laughs> trying Just trying to filter out the results is difficult enough. So that's another thing I do. I do look at birth and death records where they're applicable. Um, I've even looked at some family trees before that have been publicly available. There, there's a, one of the Welsh ones that we will look at eventually up in Aberystwyth. That was great because it's all based on an interview that somebody gave, which now can be listened to in the local museum. Um, but there's a transcription of the whole thing on the museum website. Oh, that's helpful. Oh, God, yes. And I love it when that happens because it really makes my life a lot easier. Um, But a a lot of it's patience and a lot of it's just being stubborn as hell and just not giving up when when you don't initially find the answers you're hoping to. Oh, absolutely. Are you planning on uh, investigating the paranormal side of it as well? Uh, You know, you get a lot of these kind of ghost shows, people going around with all the various equipment and trying to provoke the ghost into some kind of crazy response. (laughs) You know, all of that. Um, Are you planning on investigating that side of it as well? So not in a traditional sense. I think that kind of thing's been done so many times that it doesn't really need to be done again. I'm not going to try and convince people that ghosts do or don't exist. In in most cases, people either believe or they don't. Um, We will look at believability as part of what we discuss on the podcast. But when I talk about believability for something like a ghost story, I'm more talking about believability of the backstory, like we did with Claude earlier and the whole confusion about the landlord being murdered. Couldn't have happened and history supports that from what we know on record. I'm not necessarily saying that there's no ghost, though. He could very well haunt the place. But it's if he does, it's not because of that reason. So we're not going to be going around with um, EVP recorders or getting local mediums to accompany us. It's just it, it's been done so many times. I don't think that people necessarily want to see it done again all the time. And honestly, there are people who are probably better at that side of it than I am um, very much. I'm in this because I love local history and because I love stories and 
if, if those stories are supernatural or paranormal, then I doubly love them. They just I find them really fascinating and always have. But I'm not going to start arguing that ghosts are real or they're not. At the end of the day, you're never going to convince somebody one way or the other. Um, what I would say is that people who look up Gold Britannia and people who want to give it a listen are going to have their own opinions and they are more than welcome to share them with us. I'm quite happy to, to engage with people. In fact, I would love to have a few people come back and, and give us some feedback that we can maybe have on the show. Whether they believe or ghost, whether they believe in ghosts or not, I think and I certainly hope that they will find it entertaining. So even if they're not into ghosts, of course, uh, they, they might also enjoy the kind of local history angle as well. And, mm-hmm. and of course, Britain has so much history. A lot of people who listen to this podcast uh, might be interested in hearing about some of those lesser known stories as well. I hope so, definitely. And one thing that I really do want to do is start showing some of the lesser known stories and the lesser known local history elements. Francis Lovell isn't particularly well known outside of Oxfordshire. Hell, he's not even that well known in Oxfordshire. Unless you live near Minster Lovell, chances are you may not have heard the story. Wow. Um, the Man Monkey, unless you specifically look for haunted canals, it's potentially not something you know about. Otherwise, well, unless you live in that Shropshire area. There are going to be one or two well-known ones that we do discuss. We have an episode on, on Bisham Abbey that we'll be doing. I think that one is fairly well known, but we're trying to mix it up so that with the podcast, it's not just the the stories you hear all the time. It's not like if you put into Google top 10 hauntings in Oxfordshire or in Liverpool or wherever, you'll find them. It's things that are a little bit more hidden away. They're a bit more secretive and they maybe require a little bit more, more digging to get to the root of. Well, I think that sounds absolutely incredible. I can't wait to listen. Once again, everybody, this is Matt Robinson from Ghoul Britannia, which is going to be streaming starting tomorrow. Uh, Now, as a little bit of an extra for our patrons on Patreon, uh, me and Matt are going to keep talking uh, uh, just a little bit longer about some of our own personal ghost stories. Now, I know, of course, that doesn't appeal to everybody who listens to this, but if you are interested in the supernatural (laughs) then uh, check us out over on patreon at dirty sexy history it's always so fun to talk to matt as we mentioned in the interview you can find the rest of our conversation about our personal ghost stories on patreon at dirty sexy history they are not strictly related to the episode but they are a lot of fun so if you want to hear us talk about that be sure to check it out This week, I'd like to thank Matt Robinson, of course, as well as our fabulous patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayanna DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Mary McComb, Janine Nieberg, Jessica Miller, Kelly Simon, and Echo Spoot. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please also rate, review, and subscribe because it really helps us out. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History, where we will, of course, post the photos from today's show. Our sources today include Alan Brooke and David Brandon, Tyburn, London's Fatal Tree, Captain C. Johnson, The Lives of the Highwaymen, 1734. Lucy Moore, The Thieves' Opera, 
and the Newgate Calendar. And shout out as well to the History Vault, who published an earlier version of my article on Tyburn a few years back. Much appreciated, as are all of you. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.